The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated social and health disparities across many regions, highlighting the need for an international global response to ensure that resources are allocated in an equitable way. In this episode, we'll be talking about COVID-19's impact on Canadian foreign policy and the global health landscape as it relates to vaccine development, procurement, and distribution. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. My name is Gordon. I'll be your host for this episode, along with my fellow co-hosts, LaShawn and Will. And we are also joined by a special guest. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. So Julia Anderson uh, is the Chief Executive Officer uh, for CanWatch, the Canadian Partnership for Women and Children's Health, She has over 15 years of senior and executive level experience in international development, not-for-profits, civil society, human rights, and gender equality. Julia works closely with multiple stakeholders on international development policy-related issues, from Canadian and global decision-makers to young leaders. In 2019, Julia spearheaded the shaping of a renewed collective vision by Canada's global health sector that resulted in a $14 billion 10-year investment by the Government of Canada. As the CEO of CanWatch, she continues to champion bold, innovative, and even disruptive approaches to advancing the health and rights of women and girls around the world. She also holds a Master of Arts degree in Canadian and Indigenous Studies from Trent University and an Executive Certificate in Conflict Management from the University of Windsor Law School. Please welcome to the Public Health Insight Podcast, the one and only Julia Anderson. Welcome, Julia. <laughs> welcome, welcome, Julia. Thanks so much for having me. So as is customary, before we dive into the weeds um, a little bit, so we want to take some time to um, to talk to you, Julia, about just some fun facts about yourself and the organization that you represent. So um, tell us about how you became um, interested in global health policy, Canadian foreign policy, um, and you know women's and child health. Uh, there's long stories and short stories, but the the short story or Cole's notes version is that when I was super little, my grandparents uh, were missionaries, and so they lived all over, and they would send us. And this this ages me because it's not quite modern, but it's not super old technology. They would send us uh, cassettes of recording. My grandmother would talk about all these places that they were seeing and people they were meeting and interacting with. And I knew from that moment forward that I wanted to do something that was out in the world and international. Um, And so I studied uh, international development in my undergraduate degree and my, my master's as well focused on sort of that development um, development landscape and how Canada, what Canada's role was. And I really, um, I spent time at the, at the kind of broad development, in the broad development landscape. And then as I grew in my career and was sort of all over the place, I decided to focus in. I felt like health was just such a critical and foundational entry point to all the other issues and it's sort of a a base right that when enabled and when people live uh, full and healthy lives, other things fall into place. And so I felt like it would be fun to kind of go from the the macro into a more specific area, which I mean, now I've discovered, of course, the vastness of global health and how, how truly 
sort of infinite the field is. Um, but it's still, yeah, it's still a bit more specific and allows me to hone in uh, to learn about kind of specific mechanisms that Canada engages with and to really make a, a concrete impact in the world, which is what I hope to do. Awesome. So on, on that note, um, yeah, can you share a little bit more then about CanWatch and the type of work that that specific organization is involved with? Yeah, so CanWatch is a really interesting organization because we're a membership, we're a coalition, and mm. coalitions have sort of always been part of my career trajectory. I've always been engaged in this idea that, you know, when we come together and we work together and we have tough conversations and engage in hard issues as a collective, we can go further and we can advance faster in many ways. People talk about the slowness of coalition work and I don't see that. I don't see that bear out in the evidence. I actually see when we come together and everyone sort of has their lane, uh, you can get into a really sweet spot of efficiency um, and doing a lot, a lot more than you can do on your own. So CanWatch is a coalition of approximately 100 organizations. We take a big tent approach. So whether you're a private sector, a company, whether you are a, a not-for-profit, a charitable organization, or whether you're a research department within a university or an entire research institution, uh, you're welcome to join us and become a member of CanWatch. And then we do a whole range of things from kind of working with you on your needs and what, how you sort of learning gaps, knowledge exchange, uh, as well as trying to bring together uh, our members' best thoughts and best ideas uh, to bring to decision makers and, and sort of those who would make those macro decisions about global health policy. So we try to bring them a collective voice, um, the collective voice of our members uh, to try to push forward the best kind of position Canada can possibly take globally. Uh, so yeah, we don't, we're not like a, a, an or, many of the organizations, you know, like the Red Cross and others who are over doing things around the world, doing amazing things. We're actually situated here in Canada and engaging with each other and trying to trying to improve our collective capacity to do more in the global health space. No, absolutely. And that's so important given uh, some of the silos that are present in public health and global health. So it's great that you've been able and your organization has been able to bring everyone together and have those tough discussions and work through problems together. That's fantastic. And so... Um, as the CEO of CanWatch, um, we kind of wanted to get an idea of your, your current day-to-day -day work, um, life before the pandemic, and how it's changed after the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, great question. We were just chatting a little bit about this before we started. So we've always been a virtual organization. So I started with CanWatch five years ago, and we were set up on a software called uh, Glip, which actually got bought out while we had it by RingCentral, who, who owns Zoom. So they're now familiar to the rest of the world, but before everyone was using them uh, with quite the same frequency, that was how we engaged in our day-to-day -day work. So we've got this kind of project management platform that we sign on to, say good morning. Our whole team says good morning most mornings, unless we forget, which I often do, but uh, we kind of engage, you can see who's, who's there and who's not. We've got team members from across Canada, so we're working in two to three time zones, sometimes even four, depending on where people are at that moment. Um, and all of our phone calls, all of our hiring, all of everything happens via video, uh, video conference. So we've been doing that for a long time. The big difference in what we were talking about just before we came on is that now, in addition to that, let's say that was 
60% of my work was spent in our office. Well, 40% of my work was not spent in my office. 40% of my work was spending out with the members, at events, global summits, engaging people, visiting team members, and all kinds of things. That 40% has now been replaced by more Zoom and more, <laughs> more uh, online work, online events, online social interactions at night, so birthday parties and these kinds of things. So I would say that, you know, for us, we were super well set up, we are super well situated, but I don't think we accurately took into account the toll, the Zoom fatigue that they're calling it, um, that this additional 40, 50% of our work would take on us. Um, so it's it shifted in that way. The silver lining, if you can have a silver lining in, in this, is that at our events, when we engage with people, we get to engage with a lot of a lot more people that otherwise would not have been able to afford to attend an event with us. People from around the world, people who's who have lived experiences that are fundamentally different than the people who are showing up pre-pandemic in conference rooms. So I, I hold on to that. I'm excited about that, and that gets me through, and I think gets our team through the days long Zoom fatigue days. Okay. Uh, of kind of more and more of the same, which I think many of us are experiencing. Yeah, that, that's that's super interesting, especially um, how you're talking about that 40% of your regular schedule being shifted to more Zoom and talking about Zoom fatigue. One of the things that I always wonder and I ask people is how, like, you're in person um, pre-COVID-19, in person interacting with individuals and you're doing a lot of stakeholder engagement and collaborations. Now, how does that, how do you get that meaningful kind of exchange and, you know, trust building um, through a virtual platform? Yeah, I would say, so from a, a kind of organizational management perspective, we had thought a fair bit about this before because we you know, you, you may not meet a colleague for six months and, you know, we do two staff meetings a year. So let's say you got hired right after a staff meeting. So we, we may not meet you in person for six months. So we thought about ways to build in the social and the engagement um, and the kind of personal connections into our workplace because we had been set up this way. So for example, uh, when you come onto our team, you have a water cooler chat with every single team member. So even if you're never going to work with them that closely, you're going to meet with every single team member. And the goal is to have a conversation not about work. And what that does, and then we often use those, we bring those back um, even after time, we bring them back so that people can just do it again, just get to know each other. And what that does is it gives you that thing that you would have gotten in an office before, that little bit, of, that little tidbit personal window into someone's life that you can then ask about, right? So it's the equivalent of the cat coming on screen and now I can ask you about your cat because I know you have a cat, right? And I didn't know that before because I'm not in your space. I didn't see you arrive at the office with cat hair on you, right? Like the, the ways that we learn about each other in person, um, we're trying to kind of find ways to bring that into the workplace. We also start every meeting with, uh, and, and we really try to do this, how are you landing here? How are you showing up here today? What's what's your day like? And in that moment, if you heard them talk at the last staff meeting or at the last last moment that somebody's sick or that they're really excited about, I mean, one of my directors 
for her birthday was getting this. She was super excited about these cinnamon buns. And two months later, I was like, so how were those cinnamon buns? <laughs> right? Like, because yeah. it just occurred to me. So it's committing to taking the time that feels like you're, because of the intentionality of the, the virtual space, can feel like you're wasting time. Like we set up this meeting to do something. But what you have to hold on to so tight, and I tell everyone this, is that you would have wasted a ton of time walking around the office. You would have wasted a ton of time commuting into work. You would have wasted, we're not wasting any of that time anymore. So we've got to waste that time, which is of course, <laughs> I'm being facetious because it's not time wasted. We have got to invest that time at the start of every meeting. So if you need to go an extra 15 minutes, or if sometimes half the meeting gets taken up with just a conversation, you've got to do it. One place that I have not been successful and would love anyone's tips on this uh, is in sort of fostering new connections with people who are hard to get to. So I, I think about this and I'm thinking about your some of your listeners who are looking for jobs. So these are people who are hard to get to because you don't know. You don't have a connection. So we used to go to Ottawa and we used to sit in certain cafes and run into people or we'd go out to a networking event to run into people or we'd, you know, we had all kinds of strategies that I don't even think we thought about as strategies. They're just what you did in order to kind of engage with new people. And those strategies are off the table. You have got an email, maybe you've got a phone number and that's it. And if the person doesn't get back to you, it's hard to bump into them, right? Mm -hmm. um, so in some ways, it's putting us on a bit more of an equal playing field because we're all dealing with the same thing. Still not equal, of course, but um, you know, those who live in Ottawa are not as, you know, it used to be that those who lived in Vancouver didn't get access. Well, you know, we can talk to everyone now. Um, but I, I really, yeah, I haven't, I haven't solved that problem. And it's made some of the government relations work we do, some of the networking work um, tricky. We've been asking ourselves the same question, like, how do we create kind of organic networking opportunities that kind of permeate the digital world so that people can come together um but yeah that's something we're working on but yeah like you we don't have the answers to that question mm -hmm. um, yeah yeah but thanks for that's for sharing that perspective on how how important it is to still find ways to engage with people on like a personal level um i've had people on different sides of the aisle like let's get straight to it let's not waste time um but like you mentioned i didn't think of okay well you're not traveling you're not really walking you know talking in the hallway with your colleague for 30 minutes when you should be at your desk like so you know this it's basically we're transplanting the workplace to your home and then we have to keep it as natural as it, as possible as, as what it would have been before so that's a good perspective so uh julia so as someone you, you explained all your um your, the, the leadership experience that you have um managing people in the workplace um that personal touch as well you talked a little bit about your interest in international development and um, global health, uh, global policy. And um, for this very reason, we are excited to um, talk to you a little bit in more detail about the various ways in which um, this COVID-19 pandemic thing that's been around for forever, it feels like, um, how that has impacted, you know, our Canadian uh, foreign policy and then uh, global health in general. So um, one of the unique things with um, a pandemic in my mind as opposed to some other you know natural disasters or other localized outbreaks that are you know um, 
focused in one specific region or area is that this every country is virtually being affected at the same time albeit at maybe different scales because of um, resource constraints and availability of resources but everyone's being impacted at the same time by COVID-19. Um, so one of the things that came out of this um, realization is that there has to be a global um, effort to collaborate across different regions um, during the pandemic. And one of the things that came out of it was the access to COVID-19 tools uh, accelerator, which is also known as the ACT accelerator. So I'm hoping you could just talk a little bit about um, what the ACT accelerator is and um, what, what, what was it intended to do? Yeah, so, I mean, the ACT is fascinating. And I think um, some of the coverage that um, that we saw in the news, in the media about, uh, so the ACT and COVAX mm. are, um, COVAX is a, a piece of the ACT. So you heard some coverage on COVAX, um, but what they were talking about is, is the ACT more broadly. Mm-hmm. And, and I think some of the coverage really, um, it was great because people were talking about COVAX in Canada. And so I was like, yes, people are thinking about the world around them. And kind of there was some moral outrage there, some really like tasty moral outrage about what Canada was doing, which which was interesting. But to take a step back, COVAX and the ACT, I mean, it was a fascinating attempt to disrupt the way that the world addressed this current pandemic. Mm. And what you saw captured in the vision of the ACT was all the lessons we learned from HIV and AIDS, which were lessons about systemic racism from uh, TB as well. They were lessons about systemic racism. They were lessons about who got what and when and how that cost lives and that matters. Um, You know, like you... You saw these profound lessons that we learned in the 80s and 90s and and early in the 2000s about the way the cost of a a medicine um, and the way that countries and nations and groups of nations get access to that medicine, the profound effect that that has on people's lives and people's ability to, to not only survive to the next day, but also in the case of HIV AIDS to, to, to thrive, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so we learned all these lessons and what the ACT was, was a a place where we put those lessons into practice. And we said, we're going to do things differently. We're going to put the collective fate. We know a vaccine will be created. This is not a space where this is not a neglected tropical disease where we have to like foster innovation. Otherwise, people are going to ignore this. That is not COVID. Everyone who knows how to create and innovate in the space of medicine is trying to create a COVID vaccine like that. That just goes without saying we do not need to incentivize with layers upon layers of billions upon billions. Like there's going to be money. There is a global need. This is unprecedented. So knowing that, knowing that we don't have to kind of create a market or drive a market for this, the market exists and the market is huge. We know that the more purchasing power that we have collectively, our ability to come together and kind of link our fates, the faster we're going to be able to get a vaccine to everyone. 
And so what the ACT did is they said countries, Canada, US, uh, Tanzania, Kenya, uh, Uruguay, you're all in this together. Pool your collective efforts and essentially put all your eggs in this basket, which is the, the ACT and the COVAX, and we will make an advanced market commitment to with all the vaccines that are being created. So they almost acted like like we know Canada was acting, trying to grab at all the different vaccines. What they were doing is trying to do it collectively. So so it was fascinating. Like it was like a whole new organ grew in order for us to address. And I was so heartened by the fact that it really integrated principles of equity, but also just intelligence. <laughs> like it would be smart to chase after the places where COVID is hitting the hardest and vaccinate there first. It would be smart to vaccinate as quickly as possible. It would be smart if we want to, to reduce variants and deal with variants that we get as much vaccine out as possible. It is not smart to be vaccinating populations who have little exposure or little risk, right? So it was smart, it was equity driven and countries, there are quite a few countries, including Canada bought in. This was not supposed to be a pool of resources for developing countries only. It was supposed to be one of your procurement strategies that you as a nation engaged in. What it became, because all the rich nations were able to go out and grab all the things that they wanted to grab, was it became sort of a pool of resources that was thought to be for low and middle income countries. So everyone joined as members and then, and it was supposed to be part of your procurement strategy, but then how it ended up is that aside from Canada and a couple others, those high high income countries had so many deals with other manufacturers that they didn't need to use it as their main resource. So if we fast forward to the next pandemic, which there will be another one, I hope that we get to go 2.0 on this. And then we say there's one global pro procurement strategy. There's one way of doing this. Everyone has to buy in equally like you would do for a nation. Everyone had the, and we're going to be smart about this. We're going to go to India right now. We're going to go to Brazil right now. We would have gone to the States fairly quickly because they had, you know, they had such a massive outbreak. Um, but yeah, unfortunately it didn't quite play out, play out that way, but it's still an incredibly important mechanism. There's currently a $20 billion gap in order to get um, vaccines to 20% of the populations of low and middle income countries. Can you imagine if that was your national strategy? If the Canadian government was like, yeah, we're gonna get 20% of, we're gonna, 20% of the population. We're going to do our best. I mean, we, we would be outraged in Canada, right. and yet we're, we're not outraged that that is the strategy for the world. Like it right. seems off to me. But anyways, I think I think they they have done a good a good job of raising some resources. They've got some good deals with pharmaceutical companies. We have seen deliveries of vaccines to low and middle income countries, and we just need to keep uh, keep the fight up. From my perspective, I think I think um, you know that's, that's really great points, Julia. Regarding the, the ACT um, accelerator, I think it's really like it, it is such an innovative mechanism if you consider the amount and just the variety of kind of partner organizations that are at play, right? It's like you have your different pillars. You have like, you know, you have Gavi, CEPI, WHO, like pretty much all like the, the key players in the global health sphere and like the international sphere. And I think it's, you know, it's interesting um, at we kind of leading up to, to where we are now, you know, most of the discussion is on COVAX and the, the vaccine pillar. But prior to that, 
um, you know, you kind of had like the diagnostic aspect, you know, going over um, the testing and you had like the treatment discussions about like, oh, is there actually a treatment for COVID? So, no, I think it's it really is, um, you know, an innovative um, kind of approach and just that, that whole risk pooling. Um, I think that's that's definitely something that took me a while to get wrapped my head around because I was very much like, oh, you know, this all this money is going towards, you know, the developing countries. But that's, you know, it's really not the case. It's kind of everyone collectively putting their money together and investments in like the same source so that um, I guess they're able to come to this th- this clear conclusion or or whatnot right my, 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 my main question here is kind of looking forward and in, in your in your um, opinion and perspectives like what do you think is kind of the currently um, you know some one or some of the, the key challenges or barriers that's um, you know in place and that's restricting kind of um, this mechanism from fulfilling its i guess mandated or kind of goal of you know equitable um distribution yeah i mean i think we we need to massively just on your point i agree that that the the act in general it didn't do what i think it could have done and say we're going to focus on vaccines so you had gavi there which is the global alliance for vaccines initiative you had other players there who are very big in the vaccines even who um and i think it took a smart approach by looking at this full spectrum so diagnostics you have a pillar in there around health systems because you can have all the vaccines possible in a country if you don't have the system to get it distributed. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's going to sit in warehouses. So, it, yeah, it did did take a smart approach. I mean, I think I think we need to strip back to basics on this challenge. We have a commodity in the world right now that is the most highly prized commodity, and I would say everything around it. So all those all the diagnostics pieces. These are all commodities. These are all pieces that we don't have enough of. Mm-hmm. And so to me, when you don't have enough of something and you have factories and you have land and you have the resources, I mean, there's an infinite amount of re- resources available if we wanted to use them. You need to start looking at manufacturing. You need to get smart about manufacturing and you need to get fast. Every country who's who has the ability to pivot to manufacturing of COVID-related resources needs to be pivoting. And this is a huge challenge. And it is such a, it, it's, in my mind, it's very confusing as a citizen. Like when I just think, okay, so I'm in this space and I know things about this stuff. But as a citizen, my basic assumption, and when I talk to people, my basic assumption is that the world is moving, like is is pivot is using every available resource is is pivoting everywhere but that's not happening you have got factories and companies who if they have the intellectual property and the the teaching the know-how the capacity they could be producing this stuff and that's just mind-blowing to me right like it's mind-blowing that we could and we're not so i would say in addition to well-resourcing the COVAX and making sure that we're moving beyond this ridiculous 20 percent thing which is just I, you know, I, I feel a lot of, I, I'm very frustrated by that notion. I know why they had to do it, but it is wrong. We need 100% a strategy to get 100% of countries vaccinated. And so beyond, you know, beyond that, I think we need to take a, a good hard look at IP, intellectual property, and start removing barriers 
and start just acting like this is a real crisis. Like, like if, if your house was on fire and the house is on fire, would you not use every pot of water? And it's like, there's a fire hydrant sitting right there. And we're just like, well, meh. <laughs> you yeah. know, like let's just yeah. let's just leave it. We'll we'll think about it later. We'll come up for a str- with a strategy for that. And you know, it just it's mind blowing to me. So I would say manufacturing and kind of intellectual property are the other biggest barriers to actually addressing COVID. It's not it's not the resources and it's not the ability. It's mm-hmm. just the intelligence to go where there is capacity. Yeah. When 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 you mentioned that idea of um, you know kind of putting all your resources and actually just investing everything into this it really reminded me of you know early on in the pandemic especially in canada where we had the the ppe shortages or things like that and you had you saw like the local you know things like local breweries um doing yeah. like hand sanitizer and just kind of like the you know the the collective effort and like yeah it's it does it really does get you wondering like is are, are all those um i guess players who who could be involved really involved in this in this i guess solution yeah, it uh, gets you thinking for sure. <laughs> yeah, and it, it it when you think of I know in this in the United States they have that Defense Production Act where they can turn regular manufacturing plants to produce whatever they need at the time. So, given you know countries are willing to do it when it's um, when we'll get into the self interest framing versus the other types of framing in a in a moment, but it just goes to show um, a lot of times decision makers are in a position where they're there's a com- there's an uh, perceived um, um, competition or in terms of conflict of interest per se as opposed to like uh, the citizens of the country and the global citizens so they walk that line of of not wanting to upset um, the people that they're elected to represent and putting the other global citizens second but I know Julia you have some good information on um, that's not it's not there's some nuances there that that underlying assumption that that is the case is not entirely correct um so we'll, we'll get into that in a moment but i wanted to ask you um i know one of the things that can watch um was advocating for and is, is still advocating for is to increase that the vaccination efforts for frontline healthcare workers uh, especially earlier during the pandemic considering uh, people are being hospitalized and and um the healthcare workers are you talk about high risk situations it doesn't really get much more high risk than a healthcare worker caring for a patient with uh COVID-19 so why was this a, an important stance that CanWatch uh, felt like it needed to take I think it's a great question and to an extent um you know into our earlier conversation one of the big challenges is here is that people just don't know what to do and at CanWatch we were trying to think about you know, we've got all these members who are working in global public health, you know, names that you would know, like Red Cross, Oxfam, Sick Kids. Um, so we've got all these members who are working. We were trying to think about was one kind of framing that would allow us to say that that COVID has not been the great equalizer, um, you know, that it was thought to be that that certain people and certain po- populations are being more marginalized uh, by this pandemic and will continue to be as the economic fallout and the secondary fallouts. So we really felt like um, healthcare workers was something, um, was one kind of piece of the puzzle that was so obvious, um, but, you know, we wanted to make sure to say it and make sure to say that those those Canadian healthcare workers who are feeling this immense pressure, frontline workers, 
you know, people are exhausted. It is a tough, it is a slog right now. We wanted them to feel that sense of global solidarity uh, with with people around the world. I mean, and the other big reason is we care a lot about, we think a lot about women and children as per right. our game. And, you know, up to 80, sometimes 85% of frontline healthcare workers are women. So though you saw early indications that um, that COVID affected male populations more, or they were higher, there was a higher death rate amongst men, we knew that it was only a matter of time because women were at the front lines all around the world um, and also kind of taking on this additional burden of care uh, that came with children not going to school, with communities falling apart um, and falling, kind of falling into pieces on a whole matter of fronts. We knew that women would be carrying that load. And so this was a way of trying to say, look, here's a smart policy solution Here's a smart focus and we can make a huge impact if we invest in this. And we did see uptake by COVAX, um, or sorry, by the ACT, the Canadian government started talking about it. It became kind of, when we were first saying it, no, there there wasn't a lot of others saying it, but over time you are hearing that, that 20% that we're going to vaccinate around the world, um, included in that list as frontline healthcare workers. But just one really important point to make about that. When you think about your circle of healthcare workers, if you just, as a person, just jot down who are the people who you would consider your healthcare workers in your life. As a, a Canadian, probably the people that you would jot down are mostly paid. So you talk about your doctor, you might talk about your physiotherapist, you might talk about Around the world, that picture, that family tree of, of our healthcare tree, I think this would be a great public engagement exercise, really shifts. So in, in Canada, in most high income countries, most of those people are paid, not well paid, but paid, um, and not always well paid, but paid. Around the world, you, you shrink back. So most of the healthcare workers, most of the women working at the front lines are actually unpaid healthcare workers. And of course, when you're developing a strategy to vaccinate them, recognizing that you just, you can't only go to the nurses association, to the medical doctors, that you have this whole health infrastructure that is literally holding up communities with unpaid work. Um, and that those people are as critical to the health outcomes of that community as the paid workers is really important. So we wanted to try to get at some of that nuance. We wanted to try to um, use that as a bit of an opportunity to talk about inequity and to talk about, you know, one solution or one possible entry point to a solution um, that we could we could run with. You've just heard part one of Gordon, LaShawn, Anwell's conversation with Julia Anderson, CEO of CanWatch, the Canadian Partnership for Women and Children's Health, about her organization's work in global health and Canada's global pandemic response. Join us for the next episode, where Julia talks about public polling, the importance of appropriately framing issues around Canadian foreign policy, and her career journey into international development and global health. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.